Thank you. Well, I see at least some of you came back. <laughs> That's awesome. Welcome to those here and those that are with us online. What a blessing to be together in the name of the Lord. Um, praise God for his goodness. We are continuing our brief study of the temptation of Christ. And so let's start just with rereading re that passage. If we can, we'll start in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized but you, but you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered and said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him away to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. I, this subject has been stirring me for a very long time. I mentioned last time the journey to get to here to be able to talk about these things. It's been a long one. Last week I shared some of my testimony from the year 2021. So this is very much a topic that God has taken me on a journey to be able to see these things. And it's humbling and honoring to be able to share them with you as God's children. But it seemed like to me the harder things got, I kept coming back to this passage, and the harder things got, the more God pulled me back to these same passages, and yet I wasn't getting anything out of them. That's awkward. Lord bringing me back again and again. You need to look at this. And I would. And it's like, I'm missing something. It's not clicking how you're telling me there's something rich and deep here that you need to capture, and yet I can't see it. It was awkward. So to try to keep things moving, I would write down notes. I'd take notes. I'd scratch through things. I'd rethink it. I'd throw it all away. I'd start over. I'd write the notes again. 
And it was a season of that for a long time with hatches, scratches, arrows, strikethroughs, piles of stuff that went to the recycle bin. And it kind of reminds me of a story. I think I've told it a few times. But there was a preacher that had a young boy, his son. And that boy came into the study and hopped up on dad's lap. And he looked at all the books and papers and everything and said, how do you know what to say, daddy? How do you know what to say? And the dad says, well, that's a good question. I read the Bible and I pray. I ask God to help me and I listen to what God's saying. And then I write that down. Whatever God's telling me, I put that in my notes. And then that's what I preach from. So all this stuff, this is all stuff God told you? Yes, I believe it is. So why do you keep crossing all this stuff out? <laughs> the Lord, we're humans. The Lord uses us in a process. And so here we go. It may seem odd to start a study on the temptations of Christ in, with the baptism, but that's where the Bible puts it. It puts them right next to each other. And I think that's with purpose, and because this is the moment, this, the baptism of Jesus, that is the moment where John, whom Jesus said was like Elijah, he said, in fact, if you can receive it, this is the Elijah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. He wouldn't have said Old Testament. This is Elijah. If you can receive it, this is him. This is the one that... Jesus knew had been identified for that ministry and this is the moment though when John realizes who Jesus is because there's this voice from heaven this is my beloved son and John had been told when you see this happen that the spirit of God descends on one and stays that's him. That's the one. This is the one you're preparing the way for. And that happened. That's the context of this passage. And so this is the Son of God. That becomes like the highlight of this passage. So sonship is what we focused on last week as we read it. You know, we read these passages, or especially the temptations, from our perspective, and we get stuck on the circumstances. You know, the bread, the cliff or the precipice, the building, the temple, the mountain. Why is Jesus being tempted in the first place? We wonder about so many things, and we also wonder why doesn't Jesus just do something dramatic and just put it to a bed, you know? Why doesn't he just settle it? And that's where I was stuck. I was missing something. And yet this is how the Son of God chose to proceed. But we read it that way, do something dramatic, as if the main thing for God was to rescue Jesus from his circumstances. And we think that way. We say, well, that's what God would do if he was really paying attention. Ow. Sorry, I... <laughs> didn't warm us up. Maybe we need to do some exercises before we get going on the Pilates. I, I'm sorry, but isn't that how we think? 
we jump to these conclusions, and that's not where God is at in what he's doing here. He's up to something different. We need a different perspective to be able to see and perceive what this passage about is about. It's not about the miracles, because Jesus didn't do any. We need to step back it from it and view it from the perspective of what God's wanting to achieve. And suddenly, sonship really starts to bloom in front of your spiritual eyes. That that's what's going on here. See, God is in the people building business and has been from the first recorded word. He's building people. And I want to be clear, when I mention sons, I need to be clear, especially in our day and age, about what I'm saying. I'm not talking about men exclusively when I'm talking about sons. I'm talking about all of us, all believers. In the beginning, God created them in his image. Male and female, he created them. It's an image-bearing thing. He had both in mind and the distinctions, all of that. It was all part of his plan. Let's turn and read from Romans chapter 8, just to emphasize this point. And we'll start in verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This will be our revealing, the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. That's what this passage is about. The one we're studying is about the revealing of God's son, Jesus. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the sons of God, the children of God. It's everyone. It's not a male-female thing. When we talk about sons of God in this context, we're talking about God's people. God is in the people-building business, and that's all of us. But the way that he chooses to communicate through us in these last times is through his son, Jesus. So put this in the context of Jesus Christ central and you'll find your place there and you'll be blessed and at peace. So let's look at this passage in chapter 4 together. But before we do, let us pray. Father God, thank you so much that this is your world. That the battle is not done that Jesus who died shall be satisfied as earth and heaven are one. Let it be so, God. Father, I pray that you would give me the words and wisdom to be able to communicate your heart to people. And Lord, let ears be unstopped to hear your voice in Jesus' name. Matthew 4, verses 3 and 4. Then tempter came and said to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes 
from the mouth of God. And so we here have the first of three temptations for bread, for a one-meal deal. And Jesus' response, though, isn't about the happy meal. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. So what I want to just draw to our awareness is these things are not equal. My arms aren't even long enough. This doesn't square. The devil is talking about a loaf of bread, and Jesus is talking about the word of God. Let me tell you what's going on. It's called deception. Something is warped. Things that should be appear the same don't because the devil's involved. The tempter is involved. The deceiver is at work. This is part of why I couldn't see what was happening in the passage. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. We've got the toaster pastry on one side and the eternal word of God on the other. And it might even look at first reading that Jesus doesn't respond to the question. But these are the words of of an accuser, a deceiver. It's similar to an event in the garden where Satan used some food as an enticement to plant doubt. And it wasn't that meal that was at stake. We know that now, don't we? A deceiver was involved. It was the relationship between the image bearers and their father God. That's what was at stake. But the deceiver didn't divulge all that information, did he? Things were warped, twisted. The devil's tactic is always to drive a wedge in our relationship with God, and he will use deception to do it. He's worse, excuse me, he's worse than a liar. A pathological liar just can't help it, and they just lie, lie, lie. This is not just lying. This is proactive deception, purposefully going against the grain of what God has said. That's a different thing. Jesus doesn't take the bait like Adam did. The devil tries to put distance between you and God, between you and God's word, between where you are and what God has said and when he said it. How does he do it here? If you are the son of God. Well, back up three verses. Hello, Jeff. Right Back up three verses. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Just three verses. How long does it take to get from chapter 3, verse 17 to chapter 4, verse 3, if you're reading at a normal pace? About 10 seconds? I couldn't see it. Evidently, my spiritual attention span is less than 10 seconds. It took me more than a year of meditation and to study, to realize and understand that this issue of sonship, 
That's what God was about. That's what this whole passage is focused on, is Jesus, the Son. Jesus had about 40 days in the wilderness. That's about six weeks. He had to look from where he was to back to what the Father had said. He had to look back across the wilderness to that point at the Jordan where he'd been baptized. And he and everyone else heard the words, this is my beloved son. He had to square himself back to what God had said. Scripture that he quotes in verse 4 is from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is when Israel was in the desert and Moses had led Israel out of Egypt through dramatic deliverance across the Red Sea, which was Israel's likeness of a corporate baptism, if you will. Scripture draws that analogy. And do you remember what Moses had told Pharaoh? Let my people go. Why? Does it, hmm? To go worship. Let my people go so that they can come and worship. God led Israel into a desert. Does that sound familiar? Dramatic deliverance, baptism event, and they are immediately led by the Spirit of God, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, into the desert. Does this sound familiar? And God did that knowing full well that he would have to care and provide for them there. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter 8. starting in verse 2. You shall remember the way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing didn't wear out on you, and your foot did not swell for these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciples his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you, or disciples you. God's heart wasn't punishment, wasn't putting them on trial. Yes, it's, there was a, a testing to know what was in your heart so that the Lord would know, yes, I think he already knows, he knows the heart, but also so that they would know what their heart was. God treating Israel as a nation, as a son, disciplining them. God led them into this desert and had to provide and care for them. Now, that wasn't a surprise to God, but it appeared to be to the Israelites, right? How many of us can relate to that? I wasn't expecting to be here, having to cry. Surely if I'm a son of God, one of God's children, this isn't how this would be. What's going on? 
And at that moment in the wilderness, Israel needed to look back across the wilderness to their miraculous deliverance to understand the extent of God's amazing love for them. And in that security, they could stand at peace, put their bags down and say, it's all right, we've made it. This is where we're supposed to be. There's no food, there's no water. Dad, what's going to happen? It's okay. This is where God wants us. The Lord will provide. You see, there is nothing that provokes worship in God's people like seeing the hand of God provide. Nothing. And he's willing to put that on display in order to be able to catch our hearts, to discipline us, to draw us near to himself. Sometimes you look back across a barren land between you and your last milestone moment of God. And God's not, it's, not like, it's not like God isn't with you in the wilderness, but the devil would have you be believe that God has abandoned you along the way. That's his tactic. And that is why scripture reminds us again and again and again, remember, 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 call to your remembrance all these things that have been spoken. And in fact, in some of these passages, bind it on your feet, bind it on your hands, bind it on your forehead. Get the point and stick with it. You got to remember come back to whose God is and his faithfulness. So the temptation to Jesus wasn't just about bread. The real temptation was doubt, distrust. If you're really a child of God, if you're really a son of God, prove it. And children of God, I'm speaking to all of us when I say, do not let the enemy drive a wedge between God and you. Do not, he will question you on every turn. And he will sow distortion on every turn so that you cannot quite see things straight. Do not let him steal your sonship. Be careful what you eat. Eat at God's table the communion that we celebrated, which points to Jesus, the Son. Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He is our provision. Don't take the enemy's feast. His full meal deal is not what's advertised. Don't be like Esau, who sold his birthright his sonship for a pot of stew. The price is too high. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Ah, now we have a devil that quotes scripture. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And so here we have that same question. If you are the Son of God, prove it. See, the devil's challenge was, all right, here we go. Let's throw down. See whether these things can really be trusted. And as before, the deceiver is involved. Not everything is as it seems. It's not like there's an old-fashioned duel going on, you know, where the pistols are out and both individuals are at risk. No. The devil said, no, you throw yourself down. You throw down. In the devil's throwdown scheme, it's only you that gets thrown down. Some people say that this jump was like an opportunity to impress a crowd, like Jesus was going to do an amazing stunt, you know, like the flying Walindas or something, and then he lands gracefully at the bottom, or maybe he lands, and I don't know. Some people think that it was a call to impress the crowd. It was a jump off of a, a, a very high pinnacle. Some of the uh, commentaries that I read suggested it was as many as 20 stories tall. A anyway, it matters not. It was a huge pinnacle. And what's the normal thing that you might expect if you jump from the supreme height? Death. It's ironic, isn't it? It's as if the devil is asking, jump. You surely shall not die. Does that sound familiar? Just like in the garden. And Satan can quote some scripture as he does here. It might be in his head, but it is not in his heart. He challenges the legitimacy of God's word by taking the word itself, trying to point it back upon itself, warping it. And it's as though he, there's this terrible misjudgment about what death is and about what it means to God's creatures. It's as if Satan cannot see beyond the physical death to the horrible implications of spiritual death. He's so self-deceived, he can't see that. The death that separs, severs one's relationship with God. But I don't think this temptation was about some power scheme, impressive thing that Jesus would do to impress a crowd. I don't know how many crowds were hanging out at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. I, I, that, you know, they would gather in the temple areas, not, not there. I think it's closer to the mark to see that the temptation was to act in presumption. Under a banner, catch this, of faith. If you were God's son, if you had great faith, surely you could do this. To say it differently, Live dangerously and let God pick up the pieces. Just move on in faith. God will catch up. It's a difference between stepping out in the flesh and stepping out in faith. And I don't like that 
things don't line up like they ought to. But I tell you, the deceiver is at work. We're, we can learn something just by how difficult it is to pull this stuff out. Read Job. My goodness, what's right and what? Only this week did I realize, well, that's why that's so difficult to understand. <laughs> the deceiver's involved. Matthew 7 and verse 21 says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, this is Jesus speaking, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And they will respond. But Lord, didn't we do impressive miracles in your name? Prophesy? Even cast out demons? And he says, I will declare to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, doers of lawlessness. Now, what? Workers of iniquity? Workers of lawless? How is casting out a demon lawlessness? Because you've gone rogue and you've done it on your own. Thank you for your word, Jesus, for speaking straight and not with a forked tongue like the serpent has. You've exchanged the one thing that God is after, which is knowing him, with the benefits of being his. It's not a good exchange. Instead, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added to you. Get the heart straight. Moses, how often is he reminding the people, it's about your heart. Circumcise your heart. You see, our miracles will never impress God. They don't move him. They don't get a rise out of God who created the universe with a word. It's not the miracles that prove your sonship prove that you are a true child of God. It's the completeness of the sacrifice of worship. And we talked about that last week when uh, in, in looking at Elijah and Elisha, right? Elijah, John is the New Testament Elijah, but there's no miracles recorded of him. What's going on? These things don't seem to line up. And yet Elisha, is the only one upon whom prophetic sonship is conferred in the Old Testament. He's unique in that. And in the New Testament, Jesus is the only one upon whom the sonship of God is conferred in the New Testament. God doesn't lie. He never stretches the truth. He never deceives. He has no need to prove his authority. No tricks, no games to prove his character. He is who he is, his name. I am that I am, the unchanging one. Satan tempted Jesus to prove his sonship, and Jesus flatly refused. Don't need to. Ironically, follow Jesus around, and you will see plenty of miracles, right? The Pharisees made a similar request of Jesus. Show us miracles to prove that you're the Messiah, God's son. What sign will you do for us? Jesus' answer, 
What are you talking about? Look at the miracles. They're already there. Just look. Open your eyes to see what's happening before your eyes in the light of what God has already said in his scriptures. I don't need to do anything to prove anything. See, these temptations are not about bread or some impressive jump. It's not about God setting the record straight. God's record is straight. The deceiver is the one who has distorted things. This is about us proving to be the children of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. That's Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. This refers to an incident that's recorded in Genesis, sorry, Exodus 17, where Israel asks for water. It's, but they ask, it's not really a question like, where are we going to find water? How shall these things be, to quote Mary from the New Testament? It's not that kind of a question. It's a demand. Give us water. Are you with us or not? Moses then is told to take out the rod of judgment. Now, this rod had significance. It's like God setting up a courtroom scene because it's the same rod that God used in judgment on the plagues on Egypt. It's the same rod that we used to part the Red Sea. And he says, take the rod of judgment and take the elders. This is for the decision-making body to see what's happening in the judicial acts of God. It's the taking of those things that kind of sets this scene in Exodus 17 apart. <coughs> God's setting up a courtroom scene to settle this dispute about the water. The charges? Abandonment. Are you with us or not? Here we are, no water. The charges, abandonment, abandonment by God, willful neglect. That's what God's people charge him with. God instructs Moses to gather the nation together for the judgment, like this courtroom scene. And God is the one that's in the dock. You can read it, Exodus 17. God says, I will stand on the rock, and Moses, you let your rod fall. Judgment is coming, and we expect that judgment to come with punishment, but instead we get mercy. Moses, you strike the rock where I stand, says God. And he did, and it brought forth water. The people of God had put God on trial. Do not test the Lord you God like you did at Massa. The people of God had put God on trial, but in his mercy, God let the rod of judgment fall to himself. Points directly to Christ our rock, who was struck on our behalf when we were the ones that deserved it. Pierced on the cross, 
And what did that bring forth? Water and blood. Jesus' response to the devil, do not put the Lord your te- God to the test. Do not put him on trial. It's not faith to demand that God show that his promises are true. That's turning the temptation around and tempting the Lord. God is in absolute control of all things and need not impress anyone. Jesus didn't die to impress you. He died to redeem you and to draw you near to the Father. So now we come to the third and maybe the most direct of the devil's temptations. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall not, or you shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. And then the devil left him. The reference there is to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. All part of the same passage in Deuteronomy. And perhaps this is for Jesus the most compelling of all the three temptations because it strikes right at the, car, at the heart of God's design, right at the heart of what Jesus had come to do, right at the point of Jesus' passions, which was to establish the kingdom of God and to draw all nations, that's us, to himself. Psalm 2 and verse 8, Ask of me and I will give you the nations as an inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. But that's God giving that, not the devil. But what would be more tempting to a king than a kingdom? Satan strikes right on the point of Jesus' purpose, his calling, his gift. If there is an area where you think that God might be wanting to use you or you see a stirring and gift, you can pretty much expect that you will be tested there. I might say there was a certain amount of appeal in this offer to Jesus. Hear me out. It's a shortcut quicker path to the fulfillment. We talked last week about the paths that we're sometimes presented with, and one looks good, and that's often not necessarily the one that God travels most often. But this would be the short path, a wide path that bypasses all the challenges of suffering and sonship and skirts past all matters of discipline and emerges immediately with the fullness of God that God has for his gift. And all of that comes into expression, or at least that's the impression that we're given. You can have it all, and you can have it immediately right now. But that's a mirage. It's distortion. Just like the one that was presented to Adam and Eve, God knows that when you eat of this, you'll be just like him, knowing good and evil. And Adam and Eve think, that's, that's it. That, I am supposed to know some of these things. As the image bearer, that's right. It resonated. 
because of God's intentions in fullness. And I don't claim to understand all of that completely, but it resonated. That's what I want more than anything. It struck right at the gift, right at the image bearing. I think God had a path that he had intended for Adam and Eve to come into greater revelation, greater maturity in their walk, fuller expression of their relationship with God, flowing more fully in their gift as God's vice regents in the earth. I think they chose the easier path and found out that there was a more arduous and painful one, evidence of a deceiver at work. Luke 4 and verse 6 says, the devil says, all of this has been delivered to me. All these kingdoms, everything you see, everything I'm showing you here, it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. That's the devil saying that. And there was some sense in which that was true. Can't take it too far because this is the deceiver. and He warps things. But there was an authority that had been usurped but it was usurped from Adam and Eve, God's sons, the children of God. The devil's authority had been taken from the rightful bearers of that authority. And we know now that all the nations do indeed belong to the Christ, one of these human beings. But that statement comes after the crucifixion. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And it's not at this moment. Jesus still had a path to follow. The Lord's path, it was straight. There were no deceptions. But it was narrow. Perhaps even confining. So the devil takes Jesus up a mountain to the pinnacle of earthly power, kingdoms, dominions, nations. And I don't know whether this was a literal place or a spiritual place. These things are too great for me. But there seems to be a certain familiarity about it. Let's think about this. A towering place with all of the nations of the world gather around. Does that sound familiar? Harkens back to the Tower of Babel, a mountain where people were trying to build things up so that their power could reach to the heavens. And this is the pinnacle of Satan's desire. All this is yours if you worship me. Now, let's talk for a moment about kingdoms. And suppose with me for just a moment that there are three. There's God's kingdom the devil's kingdom, and your kingdom. Just work with me with that. You see, this, Satan offers you your kingdom to build his. All this can be yours if you worship me. But God offers you his kingdom. And if you can receive it, You'll find your own there. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. It's like the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. All that I have is yours. 
in true union with the Father. See, Satan brings you up a mountain so that he can take you down. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He came down to lift us up. God's gospel is so simple. We complicate it with enticements for a better life, happier, more fulfilled, so forth. No, the gospel is simply, you need to repent. Just say, God, I'm sorry. Come clean of your sin. Stop monkeying around with it. You need to come to God because he loves you, and that's the only safe place to be. It's that simple. If you don't know what words to pray there, ask God and say, God, I don't even know how to pray. I'm not going to tell you. This will be your first moment with God. God, help me to pray to give my life to Jesus because this word is true. The Lord will do it. What I've tried to do for these two weeks is to illustrate that God has a plan written that he has written you into. There's a way and a path that you can travel to see the goodness of the Lord and that the most important thing is not the things that sparkle in front of our eyes like bread or miracles or kingdoms or our place or affirmation or sticking it to the devil. The most important thing is where God's eyes are sparkling where he's seen something, an invitation for us to be his children, as numerous as the sands of the seashore and sparkling in his eyes like the stars of heaven. This is the heart of our Lord. What do you suppose Jesus was praying about for those 40 days in the wilderness? Whoa. What was, right? He's there, he's talking with his father. What are they talking about? The Spirit of God led him there. I think they were talking about the path that lay ahead. Jesus says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. They were talking joy. They were talking about many sons and daughters being brought into glory. They were talking about the revealing of not just himself, but sons. Like Romans chapter 8. They were talking about things that would soon be taking place as Jesus would begin his ministry. Let's read Matthew 7. It's just a couple chapters over. Verses 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. This is Jesus encouraging ordinary people like you and me. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Thank you, Lord. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
This is at the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is opening words as he begins his ministry. And Jesus is talking to ordinary people about the kingdom and how to enter the kingdom and receive all the goodness of the Father. It's about drawing close to the Father. And in verse 9, he says, if your son asks you for bread, are you going to give him a stone? What do you think was in his mind? Where did he just come from? Lord, Father, it's been 40 days. I'm getting hungry. Here, Jesus, why don't you turn this stone into bread? Or if he asks you for a fish, would you give him a serpent? Father, it's time. It's time to bring the harvest. It's trying to bring in your hall. It's time. Can we go make fishers of men? That was his promise to Peter. Can we go pull people out of the seas of judgment? Can we draw them into the land of milk and honey? Jesus asks his father for us in the wilderness. But who does he see next? Not fish, not us, the serpent. That great deceiver, the serpent of old, licking the dust of the ground. And Jesus was teaching as he was teaching, he's having flashbacks to this temptation in the wilderness. Like Jesus, we need to push past the deception. Look back across that wilderness and hold fast to what the Father has already said and done. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You'll have what you're asking for. You'll find what you're seeking. How much more will the Father give to you, if you ask. The words of Jesus, I think he speaks truth and he speaks it straight. For all the pain, anguish, agony, confusion that these recent COVID years have brought, you heard the testimonies I gave last week. I'm seeing God do something in this that's only served to increase my confidence in his provision. Only served to increase my confidence in his care. Only served to, for me to see more clearly. I told you I couldn't see these things. I tried. See more clearly the things that God's done. Just so he knows, we know he loves us. I'm more convinced that this is not about me. It's not about just getting a miracle, although I'm more convinced than ever, truly, that we shall see miracles, this body. But it's more than just toughing through troubling times. I'm confident that our God will deliver us. This is about God bringing sons and daughters to glory. Why would God do all of this? Why would, there, why would he even put two trees in the garden? Why would we face challenges so deep? Why would he send Christ into the wilderness to face temptations or into the world at such a cost? Because God loves you more than you can imagine. He created you in his image after his likeness, unique in all creation. He has intended a closeness with you that is frankly 
in this world unfathomable. It's beyond what Adam and Eve ever experienced, if you can receive that. In the fullness of time, this same God of creation became a human being, completely fulfilling that image-bearing, sonship personified, obedience personified, oneness with the, with the Father personified, love personified, the fullness of God in body. And to, he came to guarantee in his own blood a plan that draws you and me to himself. See, sin couldn't stop him. The devil tried several times, couldn't stop him. Even death, you catch that? Even death could not stop him. In fact, death, even his own death, was a means or even a device that God chose to put a stopping end to sin forever. Hebrews 9.26, he says, he put an end to sin. He did it. Can you imagine? Sin shall not reign. The devil shall not reign. God loves you, I tell you. He loves you more than you can imagine. Stephen, let me turn it back over to you. May God be glorified from his word.